0: Hi, hello, and welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and that's why I'm wearing an Oregon Ducks hat, even though I'm in Connecticut. Now, just so you know, no one in my church likes the Oregon Ducks. The only reason I'm doing this is to irritate my people. (laughs) So take that, folks, back in the Pacific Northwest. Anyway, having fun. That's enough of that. I'll take the hat off. Uh, (laughs) Any, anyway, I've written a number of things. I'm currently working on a children's picture book called Daisy, and so that's really occupying a lot of my time, but I'm best known for a book called The House, uh, the Household of the War for the Cosmos. I almost forgot the title of my own book. But anyway, there it is. Uh, why don't we kick it over to you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. Uh,
1: my day job is teaching, um, teaching systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, doing a bunch of writing, doing a bunch of reading. A lot of this stuff is uh, coming together well. Uh, some of the stuff just came out in some journals and things. But anyway, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be updating everybody soon um, when I get some some the go ahead. Let's put it that way. Um, other than that, uh, just uh, trying to take a little relaxation before before I start teaching next week, which has been anything but relaxing.
0: But <laughs> Hopefully, I'll right. have a day or two. <laughs> right. Right. Well, if you have any links to some of the articles that you've published, we could put them in the show notes for folks. That'd be great for them to know about. Perfect. Anyway, it's your day, Glenn. Why don't you introduce yourself and then the subject of the day?
2: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate and increasingly curriculum development guy for Reflections Ministries and a freelance writer, teacher, et cetera, Um, and a retired history professor. And in fact, the retired history professor is um, kind of the important point at the moment because uh, we're going to be looking back at some history today and just see where it goes. Um, When you look at the way medieval history is portrayed, when you take a sort of big look at it, one of the things that you're going to hear about is what's called the Golden Age of Islam. And a lot of the discussion of this uh, so-called Golden Age really focuses on the Iberian Peninsula, uh, Andalusia, as it was uh, known in the Islamic world, Al-Andalus, uh, or uh, you know, we would say Spain-Portugal. Um, now, the history there is um, the people who occupied Spain before the Muslims crossed the Straits of Gibraltar uh, were the Visigoths. And the Visigothic kingdom had an unusual sy- system for succession. Uh, there wasn't one. <laughs> and what that means is that whenever a king died, or more likely was assassinated, there'd be a civil war to determine who the next king would be. And this happens over and over again, so much so that political assassination was known in the period as the Visigothic disease. Well, in 711, they were in one of these. Uh, Cycles of civil war, and someone got the bright idea of inviting the Muslims across from North Africa to help him take the throne. Uh, instead, what happened is that within a year, the entire Iberian Peninsula, pretty much with with only a small part in the north, was under the control of the Muslims. From there, they pushed into France. In 732, they were within a couple hundred miles of Paris uh, before they started being pushed back. Uh, they were pushed back across the Pyrenees. Charlemagne crossed the Pyrenees and established a buffer area there known as the Spanish March. Um, And then from there, there'd be this process that would only be completed in 1492 called the Reconquista, which is the reconquest of Spain by Christians. In between those two, you have this period in which in um, in Muslim Spain, you see a flourishing of of uh, philosophy, of medicine, uh, of uh, mathematics, uh, on and on, all of these different things. Also of music, uh, the arts, architecture, um, and it really is a very, very impressive period um, at a time when A lot of Europe was nowhere near at this level of of sophistication and development. So um, let's talk about how they got there. You know, what was it that contributed to this golden age? And then we're going to go from there to what effect does this have on the rest of Europe? Okay. When Islam expanded during the 600s and into the 700s, actually even into the 800s, one of the things that happened is they conquered territories where there was a significant Christian and Jewish population. And as they developed this enormous empire, they realized they needed educated people to run it. But the problem was most Arabs were illiterate. Um, and so they ended up taking in Christian and Jewish scholars and putting them into important positions within the caliphate, including, in some cases, viziers, you know, sort of the prime minister. Uh, another thing, though, that they did is that they paid Christian, usually Christian, sometimes Jewish scholars, to translate Greek works from Greek into Arabic, In some cases, it went from Greek to Syriac to Arabic. But it's through this that the Arabs learned Greek medicine, for example, which had been lost in the West. And it's one of the reasons why Islamic medicine was considered superior to Western medicine is because they knew what Greeks like Galen uh, had written and and Western Europeans didn't. Uh, But they also got a lot of philosophy. Um, And in particular, they were really heavily influenced by Aristotle. And now, there were a lot of works of Aristotle that had been lost in the Latin world that were still preserved in the Greek world. Uh, these get got translated into Arabic, and they formed the foundation for a lot of Muslim philosophy, Arabic philosophy, as you're moving into this golden age. Okay, so the... Key foundation for the intellectual developments that occur in the Golden Age of Islam came about because of Christians who were translating the works into Arabic. Um, in an example of this would be a guy named Hunayn ibn Ishak, uh, who was a um, he was a physician, but he translated a lot of uh, Greek medical texts into. Arabic, and he and his son also will be responsible for translating Aristotle. Uh, uh, Hunayn went from Greek to Syriac to Arabic. His son went from Greek to Arabic directly. Mm -hmm. But in any event, this is is part of the background, and it's really the foundation for a lot of what is going on in Spain. Um, It might be worthwhile a little later to talk about why Aristotle fits so well into an Islamic context. Yeah. We'll we'll see. We may get to that later. But what's important to note here is that Christian scholars in Spain... Now, one of the things that happens in Spain is you get, in many places, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are working together. Mm -hmm. Their scholars are are working together. Actually, even in some Christian courts like uh, uh, Alfonso the Wise, uh, who will be king of a kingdom in the 12th century, 13th century... Um, you have Christian, Jewish, and Muslim musicians working together. Yeah. You know, producing uh, producing music that is still available today. You can still get recordings of mm. this stuff. Mm. But the scholars are all working together, and the effect of this is that Latin uh, Western scholars, scholars from Western Europe, begin realizing: Wait a minute, these guys have a whole bunch of texts that we don't have. They've got a lot of Aristotle, especially. We need to get this stuff. Yes. So they would go to, to Spain and they would translate Aristotle from Arabic into Latin. Now, catch the supply lines here. You yeah. start with Greek, yeah. you go to Syriac, you go to Arabic, then you go to Latin. Okay, <laughs> And sometimes there are Jewish scholars involved that go from Arabic to Hebrew to <laughs> Latin. Okay, So yeah, there, there's a lot of room for um, misunderstanding along the way. But what ends up happening then for Western Europe is they get a full and, you know, essentially coherent worldview coming out of Aristotle, coming through Spain, that answers all of the big questions that philosophers in Western Europe had been wrestling with And as a result, Aristotle becomes really, really important in Western Europe, uh, Western European thought through the Middle Ages.
0: So let me just say a couple of things at this point, Glenn, just to help our listeners a little bit. So the first has to do with the significance of philosophy. And I think that many of our listeners, well, probably not our listeners, but maybe first time listeners or people who uh, maybe uh, some of our listeners are interacting with, have a very Uh, sort of uh, condescending uh, attitude toward philosophy. And, you know, you'll see jokes like, you know, uh, you know, there's a meme where this kid is sharing with his father, I'm going to study philosophy. And the father says, Oh, great. We just opened a philosophy uh, factory right outside of town. You'll be able to get a job. You know, there's that kind of, uh, you know, but now that, that, that contempt isn't, uh, you know, uh, just contemporary, you can find it even in antiquity. but the problem is is that people don't understand what what philosophy helps you do. Philosophy helps you create the, the sort of the intellectual uh, framework within which a civilization can emerge. and you don't have a civilization without a kind of tacit philosophy uh, underlying it. And so it's really important to like a foundation to, of a house, you don't see it. You know, it's not like you drive down the street and say, look at that marvelous foundation over there. (laughs) But everything that's on top of the foundation is only possible because of the foundation. And Aristotle has got a lot going for him. Um, The other thing is the collaborative sort of enterprise between Christian, Muslim, and Jewish philosophers that we see in uh, Spain, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, again, we live in a day when people have a hard time imagining uh, a civil conversation between these three groups. Yeah. But there's been a long uh, history of, of interaction uh, and dialogue between these different groups at this level, maybe yeah. not at the political level, maybe not at the social level, but at this level, there's a, there's been a long conversation that, yeah. uh, and, and each group kind of knows where the other group stands
1: Yeah, I think another point to note is, on that line, I think that was very well put, is that Christians of that period in particular had such a robust view of God and confidence in their doctrine of God that they weren't in competition with ideas. (laughs) That's the thing, is we, we now have a very... Competitive notion of other ideas, even other religions. Christians didn't understand the Christian God to be in competition with these. They meant they understood these to, to have some echo of truth, but distorted by the fall. And so, the illuminative task of theology was to engage it and in, in do therapy—that good philosophy's good therapy on those—so that they could see the fuller light. It wasn't a, It wasn't the same. There are always passions involved, and there could be you know, intellectual battles that broke out. But on the whole, they were working with a very different disposition than, than you know, the way so here, are. So here,
0: right? here's an interesting wrinkle. Mm-hmm. Jewish uh, Aristotelians would have a lot in common with Muslim and Christian Aristotelians against the voluntarists of each group. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that is a strange
2: <laughs> Sorry. <No. then. laughs> that, that, that'll be worth pursuing a little bit. Just, but just what, what's interesting, Chris, you're, you're, you're right, and, I, and Tom, this idea that he, the worldview that existed in Europe really coalescing in the 12th century, sometimes referred to as platonic humanism, And the idea here is that the world came from God, therefore studying the world can bring us back to God. It can help us understand God better. And so what you actually end up getting are people making arguments that we need to have direct observations of nature in order to understand it, because nature is a book written by God. You get people like uh, Roger Bacon, who is going to argue that we need direct study of Scripture in the original languages— in order to properly understand it. And that's going to set an entire agenda for theology in England that's really different from what you see in France. Um, You know, so so you have that worldview in place, but there were still questions that they were wrestling with. And here comes Aristotle, who's got answers to them, you know, to these questions. So, the question the question becomes all right we've got a really good foundation here with uh, with this uh, platonic humanism how do we integrate aristotle into it mm-hmm. and what they do is they develop a methodology for doing this that technically is called scholasticism mm-hmm. scholasticism isn't a philosophy or a theology it's a method of study yeah. and I, you know i won't go through the details but it's really designed in order to incorporate new material, to find ways to incorporate new material into an existing worldview. So they've got this this platonic humanist foundation, which has, as Tom said, a robust view of God. How do you then bring Aristotle into this? How do we integrate him? And that's what the entire actually scholastic approach uh, methodology of study, that's exactly what it was designed to do. So, the new Aristotle is really going to shape the way education occurs in Europe, not just in terms of content, but in terms of methodology. Hmm. Now, there did arise problems with Aristotle, or for that matter, Plato.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, what do you do with the fact that Plato says that the universe is eternal?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, or Aristotle does yeah. functionally as well. Yeah. He gets there from a different direction, but both of them argue for an eternal universe. How do you deal with that? And this brings up the question of the relationship between philosophy and theology. Um, there will be people who will propose an idea called double truth. Yeah, uh, Double truth says that something can be true philosophically. In other words, by unaided human reason, you can reach logical and consistent and legitimate conclusions that are different from the conclusions you reach with revelation and theology. So, you've got truth you've got things that are true philosophically and false theologically tr- things that are true theologically but false philosophically. this is an idea that's at least proposed, although it's not clear that anybody ever actually believed it. <laughs> it was a way of trying to solve that problem of the the tension between uh philosophy and theology
0: yeah this this brings up the idea that um People in the past were literalistic and didn't have the sophistication that we possess today to think about the world in kind of models or use models to try to consider it. But that's absolutely absurd. Anybody who actually looks at the past knows that uh, the ability to sort of have a mental sandbox that you're building a, a model in Mm-hmm. Is something that's been around for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and, in fact, that's the mm-hmm. premise behind C.S. Lewis's the book, "A uh, Book: The Discarded Image." Uh, what he's getting at is that we had an image of the cosmos that we have discarded, uh, but that image was intended to be a, a model of the cosmos. And when new information came in, we realized that that, that new information couldn't be reconciled with the old model, and yeah. we've got another model today. But but right now, it's just a model. <laughs> In other words, yeah. we've got we have a mental model of the universe. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have it all right. And the arrogance of the the, the the modern, and this is, of course, where Lewis is great again. And when he when he gets that uh, you know chronological snobbery, uh, we don't know what we don't know. There there could be a discovery tomorrow that just changes everything, yeah. uh, and that we have to kind of like work with. Uh, But that's what happened. So they had a model of the universe. But also, you know, this is the way it works with all these different things. They they would look at models. You know, if you read Aristotle's Politics or, you know, uh, Plato, and they're looking at different forms of government, ways of thinking about things, and they're kind of holding them up and looking at them from different angles and considering them. They were pretty sharp people. They weren't idiots.
1: Well, no, I think I think in many cases they were our superior. No offense, <laughs> sure. I, I, just, I, I do, and and I mean you can see it. I'll give you an example. It just even maybe the profundity of the mindset of uh, just well, let's put it this way. Let's just take scripture on its surface, if you can. I mean, what do you have going on in scripture when they say, for example, this event that you are encountering right now, or this text that you're you're reading, or this message that I'm revealing to you it is traceable. To justify it is not merely to encounter it, though that is the step into it, but it's actually to encounter something that has a chain. It's connected to a chain that goes beyond merely the material causal to some point of origin that is ontologically, fundamentally, that first truth beyond which you cannot get behind, right? All of these systems were were reaching for something like that philosophically, even though they didn't have a biblical historical text in front of them, revealing that in a fuller and more intimate way that we get in Christianity. But Christianity doesn't jump into a world that its message is so fundamentally— disconnected from everything in creation that it you can't use some of the things you're familiar with as a creature to make sense of it. I mean, that's actually what is happening. Incarnation is bringing it right into your living room, if you will, so then you can begin to realize it doesn't begin or end in your living room. It has a, ch- you know, and so the philosophical, you know, like Plato, especially with the, the ability to move into the spiritual is primal and the material is sort of a secondary and the, that there is a first good, a sumum bonum, or an ultimate source, and then the traditions that grow from that. And Aristotle, to notice the way in which th- this material world and its causes is also are connected to that, that give the, gave the church, and still gives the church, probably mo- the most the richest web in order to unpack its content for us creatures who are in that world that, that our philosophies try to make sense of. So, I think that when we realize what theologians were doing and you look at it, the profundity and also oftentimes their humility to actually see what they're grappling with, um, to, to stand arrogantly and think, you know, just because, you know, Van Til came today and had to say something, somehow that undermines and writes off everything else, I think is just you know, I, I don't know. I think it's
2: delusional. <laughs> well, I, I'll add to that. The one of the really big effects of Aristotle is the centrality of dialectic in the in, in medieval education in most of Europe, not so much Italy, but elsewhere. Um, And the reason for that is, well, dialectic is um, one of the branches of the liberal arts that deals with what we would describe essentially as logic. The root of dialectic is the word dialogue. So it's logic that is worked out in discussion, in dialogues. So you will see frequently, you know, scholastic writers will write things, or early scholastics especially, will write things as dialogues. You know, that is... Work. You work through the logic that way. And, the, and now, Aristotle was really useful because Aristotle's logic, his works on logic, yeah. then provide them with the tools that they need to do the logical analyses to integrate Aristotle into their existing worldview. Um, and interestingly enough, they don't only use uh, logic. They're also going to develop very sophisticated linguistic theories when I was studying this stuff in grad school, I was a linguistics major as an undergrad. And when uh, uh, Professor Courtney, my my medieval intellectual history professor, was going through this stuff um, and how they were doing it, I was recognizing cutting edge theories from the 1960s that were being used by theologians in the 1200s. <laughs> well, that's what, I mean they were essentially the, the, the same earlier. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these guys were really, really sophisticated, and frankly. If you could have a debate that centered around logic alone, a medieval would run rings around almost anybody except a specialist logician in a philosophy department today. (laughs) They were that good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things that I know you want to get into, Glenn, is kind of the myth myth of the golden age of Islam. And let me just present uh, a thought and – uh, if it, it kind of fits with what you're talking about, great. You can run with it. If not, refute me, whatever. But really, uh, what, what we see in that sort of high, sort of the, the apex or the, the halcyon days of the, of the Muslim world is an Aristotelian Islam. Uh, it's not the Islam that we're familiar with today, and, and, and I hope we can get into that, the Asherites and all yeah. of their, their influence. And, but in other words, it's a Greek, it's a Hellenistic Islam.
2: Right, yeah. And, and by the way, I will also add that although Islam generally treated Jews much better than Christians did, it wasn't exactly a golden age for the Jews under the caliphate either, even in Spain. You know, there has been a lot of recent work being done that showed that there was a great deal of um, of prejudice and and uh, uh, legal restrictions and things like that, even in supposedly uh, open-minded and free uh, Muslim Spain, against both Jews and Christians. So we should note that 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 this is becoming more clear with with more recent research, um, but. Yeah it's worth noting that this golden age of of Islam in Spain doesn't last long. You know you're right in, in describing it as a Hellenistic Islam that is exactly what it was. Again the the heavy influence from these translations that had come from Greek that is shaping their thought uh, Averroes Avicenna uh, these these philosophers are they're really uh, uh, Aristotelians of one stripe or another. What emerges out of this, though, is a backlash against Greek thought in the Islamic world. Um, you begin seeing people arguing that, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do, use anything that might call into question any of the uh, literal ways of reading the Quran.
0: Now, now let's stop. I've heard the same argument from certain Christians. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: So, um, uh, you know, as an example of this, um, it, it says in the Quran that when an epidemic disease breaks out, Allah and Allah alone determines who gets it, who lives, who dies, and so on. Thus, you cannot talk about contagion you cannot talk about a disease spreading from one person to another because Allah and Allah alone determines who gets it. okay Now Greek medicine was well aware of contagion. So what do you do with this? How, how do you handle this? Well the the uh, what we could call fundamentalist Islam that begins growing and will end up taking over even in Spain forbids, any discussion of this in medicine it begins shutting down the the philosophers who are working with aristotle uh, all of these things really increasingly get quashed in the name of a more pure islam
1: well what you have going on here and, and you know we've talked about it b- before but you you notice a move from well, I'll say it from the angle of, of Christian theology. Christian theology was worked with a non-competitive relationship between primary causality and secondary. What does that mean? That God's agency isn't on the same order of being as his creation. It's actually the source and end of that creation. So anything that happens within the creation is also attributed both to the creator as its sovereign creator and orienter towards its his designed ends, but is also the unfolding of that creaturely reality on its own order of being in this case you have similar uh, a similar case in which islam is bringing the divine will into a competition with with the the created order and its causality and therefore if you attribute something happening in the natural or creaturely it therefore can't be caused also by the creator and oriented by the creator
0: yeah let me let me right. read let me read something that, that underscores that this is from um the uh, Closing of the Muslim Mind by Robert Riley, which is a great book if you want to uh, explore the legacy of Islam philosophically and how this very very thing we're talking about occurred where there's this transition from a sophisticated sort of uh, Hellenistic Islam to a kind of know-nothing um, fundamentalism. But, by the way, this is why we don't need to worry about uh, technological developments coming out of the Muslim world that basically if you try to study secondary cause causality, you're a, a heretic in the, the world of Islam today. But, uh, the Asherites, um, this particular, this is from, uh, that book, um, this is, this is from the closing of the Muslim mind. The third chapter is the metaphysics of the will. And, um, so in here, here's, a. Uh, Something that uh, is found in that chapter. In Islam and Science, uh, Pervez Hudboy, uh, Hudhoy, I think that's how it's pronounced, hmm. a physicist uh, at Islamabad University writes of the Asherites, quote, even a speeding arrow may or may not reach its destination, they said, because at each moment along its path, God destroys the world and then creates it afresh at the next moment. Uh. Where the arrow will be at the next moment, given that it at a particular spot at an earlier moment, cannot be predicted because it is God alone who knows how the world is to be cre- uh, recreated. So, so basically, what you're, what what this means is is that you don't study the world as you mentioned, Glenn. Uh, uh, that's impious. Yeah. <laughs> that's a demonstration that you don't believe in Allah and his yeah, absolute yeah. freedom to do whatever he pleases at any given second.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the key here. They, they have a radically voluntaristic, yeah. I suppose, view of Allah, which says that Allah can do whatever Allah wants to do at any particular point in time. And in a lot of ways, everything that happens, happens on the basis of the arbitrary will of Allah. Um, they actually argued that trying to define um, the natural laws... Was apostasy because it threatened Allah's freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Allah is very insecure. <laughs> it's,
1: well, it, it, it's very interesting because, and, and again, I'm not, this may be where you're going, but this spills, of course, over into, into the Christian world from this time, and this becomes voluntarism, it has impacted the Reformed world too, and Protestant world. It's impacted all of Christianity in some way but i noted even in my studies with bart one of the worries was his move to hold both to the priority of the divine will even in in the his way of articulating his doctrine of god is almost that god chooses throughout all eternity to be trinity i mean there there you can see where the problems start to happen in this to make the you know to, to make choice give make the essence of god basically free only if it is It doesn't have a nature guiding the wheel. But one of the problems is you begin to develop a happening and event character of God's relationship to everything. So then you start to wonder, is creation just a continuous series of generated events? And I know Bart didn't want to go there, but I think the trouble with thinking that and trying to rip it out of that, the richer web that Christians worked with by developing out a fuller sense um, leads in this same direction that you wonder you know, you know I mean even even just the, the constancy of God, if you will, it becomes a problem because it's not governed by anything other than the whim, whim of God, which can't really be known in any way even securely because everything here is just an expression of that will and its relationship to things. You don't know. Uh, you can say God has been constant, but you don't know that God's going to continue to be constant in any way. Yeah, it's this this wrinkle. brings up
0: an interesting wrinkle to think. So, like when we think about nominalism in the in the Christian world, the Franciscans come to mind. You know, we think yeah. about yeah. you know uh, William of Ockham and John Duns Scotus, but also Roger Bacon. But it, what we have with with Bacon is not this. So yeah. I, I think the Christian version, or so so it works its way into Christianity in a different way. I mean, it, the Christian appropriation of, uh, voluntarism has its own character. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it trends to is atheism.
2: Now, uh, actually, before we get there, Chris, um, a, c- a couple of points that I think are worth noting here. Um, one of them, uh, actually has to do, you know, I'm, I, I, I simply have to bring this up. It's plague. Hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> you're the plague doctor hopefully <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> we're not in for another one <laughs> one, one, one of my favorite topics um, when when the black death hit in the middle of the 14th century they asked the theologians at the university of paris what is going on um, now The theologians, you know, what we call science was considered natural theology. Then it was a branch of, you know, it was one of the things that theologians studied. So they they were, they went with the best medical theories they had, which were the Greek medical theories. And they argued that plague was caused by astrological causes. There was a conjunction of Saturn, Mars, and Jupiter, if I remember right, that caused a poisonous miasma to rise up from the earth, and that's what was causing plague. And from there. You get the idea, okay, plague's caused by bad air, therefore what we need to do is try to clean up the air, sweeten the air, as they put it, and that's where you get all kinds of of different practices. Now, when we look at this, this seems kind of superstitious and silly, but what's interesting about it is that the theologians, although they recognize that God is ultimately the cause of it, they said he's working through secondary causes here, and there's a natural explanation for this, and therefore there's something natural that we can do about it. Prayers and things like that, pilgrimages, all that's great. But there are other things we can do as well. You go a little bit south and you get into Spain. And what happens is you have a a physician there. I forgot his name off the top of my head, who is trying to find ways of um, preventing the spread of plague. And he gets arrested and charged with apostasy for trying to thwart the will of Allah. And actually, a mob broke into the prison and lynched the guy wow probably not probably not just for this probably other things as well hmm. i mean the guy was pretty controversial that's the difference between what you get in a fundamentalist islam and what you get in a medieval christendom yeah i wonder how much uh,
0: the incarnation has to do with that so even with like the franciscan's and um you know nominalism there was still A regard for the physical world Mm -hmm. and its workings.
2: Yeah, and actually, that brings up the second point. That's Aristotle. The difference between Aristotle and Plato, the most fundamental difference between them, um, is on the question of of universals. Okay, so um, you've got specific items in this world. Um, Those are, we refer to the the things in this world as particulars, then there are the universals that unite them. Mm -hmm. And between Aristotle and Plato, one of the key debates is which one is primary. Is the universal primary or is the particular primary? Uh, Plato says the universal is primary and the particulars are what they are because they're derived from the universal. Thus, there is a universal dog and all dogs are shadows or reflections of that universal dog. They are dogs by (laughs) virtue of the fact that they are are, uh, connected to this universal. Aristotle says, no, that's not right. It's the other way around. The particulars are real. And out of the particulars, we abstract his word. We abstract a set of characteristics that define the universal. So the universal is real, but it's got a secondary existence with the particular being primary. Well, and in and notes, Plato, it's the other way around.
1: Note the epistemological and ontological relation that's going on there, because in the one, you have the first truth that governs all of the, the particular truths to illuminate. With Aristotle, you have starting with the particulars, but you're you're pointing back to their, their participation in a first truth as well. So they both have... Something of a ontology of participation that that is starting to be ripped apart when you start to move away from either of them.
0: Yeah, right? maybe maybe a good way to put it is there's an epistemological cha- uh, sort of uh, disagreement, the kind of the method. Uh, you know, with Aristotle it's observation, and you kind of work your way back to the universal. Whereas with uh, Plato, you, you know, you can just sort of apprehend the universal. Project, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. The the problem, of course, is that Aristotle is inconsistent with observation. Yeah. Um, my favorite example is that he believed logically that women were essentially incomplete men. And I won't go through all the, the reasoning here. It's actually pretty funny. But um, he argued on the basis of this, therefore, that women have fewer teeth than men. Yeah, I
0: remember <laughs> you mentioned that before. Yeah, that, right.
2: That's a logical conclusion based on his premise. But all he had to do was count. Right, right, <laughs> right. You know. But, yeah. in, but in any event, um, where you get nominalism coming in here, I think... Well, within Islam, the extremely voluntaristic nature of Allah, where there are no universal laws, it's just whatever Allah wills at the moment, that's all that there is, that's going to lend itself to a nominalist approach. Um, Nominalism. Um, Nominalism basically says there are only particulars, there are no universals. Whatever universals exist are simply linguistic conventions that we use for convenience, but that don't have any ontological reality. In other words, there's nothing real about uh, the universals. No real nature that they're bound to. All that you've got are particulars.
0: So let's stop there and just help people in our audience to see how this connects to the modern world. Transgenderism. Mm -hmm. All I need to do is say that. So uh, if there are universals, that means that female is a real thing. Male is a real thing. Now, that doesn't mean that male and female are not human. Uh, in other words, there are male and female humans. So human is the larger category. That's true. But that doesn't mean that male and female are simply social conventions, just names that we've all agreed up upon. Mm-hmm. But there's a reality there.
1: And, and that there is a reality that is not merely on the level of the material particularity of it, because that's where they get into. If I can adjust the material particularity, I can adjust the, and this is where this debate becomes very significant. Um, but what, you know, one of the things I think that you, you really have going on is a few steps. Um, that are really important to see how in the world you could even get this far down the line, and I think uh, Glenn hit nicely on once you have a voluntaristic conception of God that moves away from being the transcendent source in you know in an ontologically distinct way from creation to a transcendent source in a ontologically continuous way with creation. In other words, then they move from the two different realities in relation to one reality plane at which God is up top and everything else has to fall in line under it. Then what you have is competition between God and creation. And then again, as you say, though the, then it becomes the will and it's sort of arbitrariness because it's bound up with will um, starts to destabilize the creation, and therefore, those, those realities become nothing more than just God's will at the moment, if you will. <laughs> and then, but one of the things that is hard for people to get here is that I think a lot of the Christian theologians saw that it was a way of doing justice to the creature. Because each particular was an expression of the divine will, which still had enough Christian to it that it was a divine loving will. And so you, your particular, and this is where you see in the West a strong, heightened emphasis on my uniqueness, my individuality, right? There is a gem of truth in that, but it's so, once it becomes the, the center, you get the, the, the kind of full expression of where bad voluntarism and nominalism can end up. Um, And and it's univocal. In other words, if I emphasize my uniqueness and goodness, the only way I emphasize God, because God is just superior but on the same plane, is by basically underwriting that um, and affirming that.
2: God made me this way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so you you really mm -hmm, see—go ahead.
0: Yeah, I've heard uh, heresy described as just one truth taken to an extreme at the expense of other truths.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, Now, I'd I'd like to suggest that one of the reasons why Europe was susceptible to nominalism was because of Aristotle. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that Aristotle was a nominalist. He clearly wasn't. He believed that universals had ontological existence. But By putting his focus on the particulars, we're going to start with the particulars and we're going to abstract out the the characteristics that define the universal from the particulars. By putting the focus there, it was pretty easy for you to take the next step and say, therefore, the universal is simply a mental construct that we have put together by looking at a whole bunch of things that seem similar and then defining this universal out of that. It doesn't have any reality. It is just something that's in our minds that we use as a convenience for thinking and organizing things. I, I, you know, Aristotle, I've got to repeat, he was not a nominalist, but I think that the Strongly Aristotelian bent that uh, European intellectual life took in this period contributed to the rise of nominalism in Europe. And along with that, well, it it just made them more susceptible to it. Um, Now, again, nominalism isn't going to be the dominant form of thought in Europe. Um, It's going to take a while before that really sinks in. But I think at least it starts with this um, reduction of Aristotle's uh, metaphysical and ontological vision. Yeah, I think
0: I think you got a good point there, Glenn. I think I think that that that's a sound argument. A sound yeah. observation. I
1: think I think it's definitely the you know the hypertrophy that happens with Aristotle, even in Christianity, especially in the forms of Catholicism, that the Reformation and and even sort of uh, you know Franciscans, you know, in the in the more credible sides of Franciscan theology, I think of a figure like Bonaventure, um, that, that understood both of these have to be there. Um, and and are and drawing off of the rich insights of both, you know, the Christian Platonic and Neoplatonic tradition along with the insights of Aristotle, but not yet going into where um, a hyper-Aristotelian vision could risk in the Christian theological mind of basically locking God into a system um, of natures that really began to squeeze God out, almost as if you could comprehensively get a hold of reality just by unpacking its, you know, the the, the level of secondary causality. This comes much later, but th- th- there were, you know, there were obviously episodes of that that Christians were reacting to when they went in the direction of a of a kind of voluntarism
0: to address i think it's worth noting that martin luther was an augustinian monk this is something that gk chesterton uh notes in his book the demox which is you know his 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 biography of of thomas aquinas who is you know the doctor who referred to aristotle as the philosopher mm-hmm. um there's a an attempt to recover kind of the, the earlier way of thinking that was eclipsed by the Aristotelian triumph, but it got mingled up with nominalism for weird reasons. And um, anyway,
2: it, it is worth noting that Luther studied nominalist theology you know, he was, um, he worked with uh, the writings of Gabriel Beale, uh, who's a German. Yeah. The the yeah. the Franciscans in Germany were really the center of nominalism in a lot of ways. You know, you do get William yeah. of Ockham from England, but but yeah. really it's centered in Germany. And what's interesting is that, um, Stephen Osmond did a, a great study on this, and I believe it's in a book called Homo Viator. Um, Osmond. Notes, and I'm going to oversimplify things here a bit because, well, you, you got to get into things like different forms of, of grace and merit and all of that. But if you bottom line it, the difference between the nominalist and what was known as the realist approach to salvation in the Catholic Church is um, in, the, in the realist version, like what you get with Aquinas, it starts with grace that is given to you in baptism. You are then going to cooperate with that grace and thereby get more grace. And you cooperate with that, you get more grace and so on. And at the end, um, you get salvation as a reward for all of this. So it begins with God's initiative in baptism, but it continues with a synergistic work of the individual with God's grace, working back and forth. And that comes through the sacraments in a variety of means like that. In the nominalist view, it begins with you making moral effort, Mm -hmm. voluntarism. You make the moral effort. God rewards that with grace. You then cooperate with grace. You get more grace and so on. And you get spit out at the end with salvation as a reward again. Luther said both of these are semi, are Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. Beale and the nominalist are full-bore full Pelagians. The other is semi-Pelagian. So he's going to reject both of them in favor of a more Augustinian approach. But it's interesting that the distinction between the realist and the nominalist fundamentally goes back to this issue of voluntarism. It is your action that starts the process to the nominalist, whereas it's God's action that starts it to the realist.
1: Yeah, well, it, and it's it's also interesting. I mean, I think, uh, t- you know, I I, I know enough uh, Thomists t- to argue that even Luther in that period of time were addressing something of a, of a, well, something that did arise in Catholicism. But if you you know, they would argue a more Augustinian view. Of Aquinas, for that everything that is done on the nature of human cooperation is itself a grace too. It's the inclusion of the human within, as a reality within, an agent within, but a not not a meriting agent. This is why nominalism becomes the a, a big issue because it becomes something you muster up by your own will. Now. You know, we've been debating, you know, Catholics with that for a long time, and I don't think we're going to shed too much new light on it, whether that's the case or not. But I think, to be fair, they understood that level of secondary causes—the the place where human beings cooperate as a grace, not as a as as a—you know—again, there were there, it started to move in the direction of a kind of merit founded almost out of the resources of the human, but this wouldn't have been something common in earlier Christian forms of it. But I think what's interesting is sometimes Luther does draw off of his nominalist side to kind of negate, I mean, think of his you know, his argument, you know, either God's on the horse or the human is. Um, that kind of either or can run a risk of basically, you know, I understand what he's saying and rightfully understood he's exactly correct. Um, but I think some people have read that to be that he's almost arguing it's either all divine agency and there's nothing there that is responding other than just something that is you know just just a, a creaturely continuous shaping by the creator in which there isn't really a creature there. So the worry was always did you get rid of the creature? And I think this is why the reform tradition, of course, had such a strong emphasis on the humanos right on the human and the creature. But, as always, a participant in creation as a grace. So it's interesting they you know, how they've tried to deal with the complexities that these issues brought have brought about.
2: yeah, now, one of the things that is worth noting, I mean, you know, Chris brought up before how does what this does this have to do with today? Why is nominalism important today? And his word was transgenderism. But I think that the nominalist impulse, I am not entirely sure how much of a connection there is between early modern nominalism and medieval nominalism. I am, I, I am not clear on the connection between the two. It may be there through the English Franciscans ultimately influencing someone like Francis Bacon. Um, different from Roger Bacon, different guy. But there may be a a way in which that happens, but I have not yet seen that traced out. But one way or another, um, it's clear that when you're getting into the early modern period, um, 16th, 17th century, you're beginning to see a growing nominalism in Western uh, thought more generally, particularly surrounding areas of science uh, and so on. And that's going to have huge repercussions in all kinds of areas in terms of shaping uh, our cultural imagination.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. Michael Gillespie's work on the passage to modernity, and who really attributes it, retributes it to, to theology in particular. And uh, one of the things that he, he I don't think is his passage to modernity, but anyway, it covers the co- kind of the move from the nominalist issues to the modern world. And one of the things he notes is what you get, what happens as a result of these issues isn't, like you said, a direct line you can point to nominalism, voluntarism, but there is a shift, like you said, in the social imagination um, that begins to develop. And he, he the way he puts it, and this is a little bit you know, technical, but it's a shift from ontological distinctions, which the older, you know, different, you know, God as being itself and others as creatures of that being, to ontic divisions. Ontic have to do with the different beings within the reality. And so God doesn't become the ontological source so much anymore as one ontic figure within a competition of different ontic. Figures. So the competition at first is a debate in the West in between whether it's God or humanity who has the privileged place of honor in unpacking reality and life. Well, that was kind of the, the humanist versus the Reformation, if you will. Well, then you get a shift as they move away from that to the nature replacing God as the ontic reality, and then it becomes which type. And then he, he begins to separate sort of the Cartesian line that deals with a kind of human being that, that through their rational natures, will, understood predominantly as will, if, if you will, and then the, the kind of line of Hobbes where you have kind of a materialist uh, emphasis. And so he begins to trace these different uh, orientations that are dominant in the West, Cartesian versus Hobbes and the like, from those changes in nominalism. But it then becomes sort of a fight over which ontic reality is going to divide, to, you know, to win out. And that's how he gets to, to this, this particular stage. It's, a, it's an interesting take anyway.
0: So something I'd like to introduce here as we come kind of into the end of the show is that there's a, what you're getting at, Glenn and Tom, is there's, when we get to the modern era, there's a, an an intellectual atmosphere out of which different things appear or come into being, um, all sorts of, you know, sort of things that would have been really impossible to imagine, Coming into being in the middle of the classical period, say for example Kant's uh, philosophy or Marxism or something like that, <clears throat> and and what what we have in the modern period is this milieu, this atmosphere in which uh, the nominalist, uh, voluntarist, um, sort of assumptions about the way the, the, the you know the reality functions are taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And it's, and because they're taken for granted, you can develop these, these, you know, contemporary ideologies or philosophies. Um, what prompted, I, I posted something on Facebook a, a few days ago about this very thing. And what, what inspired me to do so was there were some, um, uh, there were some people who were making an argument that, um, the jews kind of uh kind of cooked up uh marxism just out of nothing you know just or maybe out of their own tradition and that it wasn't something that kind of fit into the larger sort of framework of the history of the of western thought and it and it just struck me as kind of kind of silly um if you're going to blame anybody, blame the Muslims or the Franciscans, (laughs) you know, because they helped to create the conditions in which Marxism could actually make sense to people.
2: You know, you know what I'm getting at? (laughs) Well, actually so did Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that, that the poor have intrinsic value um, and need to be honored. That is a Christian idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so, you know what, but anyway, I don't want to go too far, toward toward, sort of uh you know creating a kind of uh argument against that group but but that was the that was the that was the basis for my statement uh that i made concerning the origins of voluntarism in the west uh you know that that if we if we go back far enough we can see that if you're looking to blame somebody blame the muslims (laughs) but but there are all sorts of things that have come out of it i mean it's not just one thing
1: and I think Glenn's right. I mean, and Christians that absorbed that voluntarism yeah. and ran with it. I mean, there there is. And again, to be fair, Scotus and Oc- they weren't all just trying to come up with a sinister, yeah, um, you know, heterodoxy. They were trying to address particular philosophical problems and issues, and they were seeing where certain things ended up once everyone bought into them. And and again, um, you know, I guess the 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 sobering. Insight from this is: this is what happens when we don't get that balancing right. <laughs> and so the, the the rigors of thinking through the metaphysical ramifications of our theology and their implications for creation really have utmost significance in how we and what we carry on in the faith and to the future for our children.
2: By the way, the the idea of um, that you mentioned earlier, Tom, um, of the human will and the divine will being in competition. Yeah, I I see that being played out in evangelicalism all the time in arguments about free will. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, God wants everybody to be saved, but he can't because human will is supreme. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. I mean, they, 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 again. They're, they're working, and this is a big term that comes out of those debates, off of a univocal view of will, which means God and humans share—basically both share wills, but God just happens to be the bigger one and therefore is going to win out all the time. Yeah, another way, right. to, or, another, or has to limit itself to the other.
0: Or, or another way to put it is there's one pizza, and uh, the more God gets, the less I have. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> right. But here's
1: one, you know, I mean, I, I remember, I think Dave Bentley Hart put it this way. He goes, all of us as Christians would say that every human being, every child born um, is a miracle and a creation of God. It's God's will creating it. Um, but I, I don't see too many Christians arguing that it isn't something that unfolds according to two people having (laughs) a sexual relationship and undergoing the natural gestation. And and both can be true, God willing and creating, and also there be a creaturely um, involvement. yeah, that's,
0: that's right. That's in, sorry, in it's the, not like you wake up one morning and there's a baby in your bed.
1: <laughs> that's right, just like divine fiat at every uh, every willing moment. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's right. <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, anything, anything you want to say as we wrap up, Glenn? I mean, I mean, this is a great uh, conversation. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh,
2: no, I think uh, you know we've we've hit a lot of different subjects and moved pretty far from Islam, but hopefully people see the connection. That's a really yeah. key point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I, can't recommend that book, the closing of the Muslim mind by Robert Riley, strongly enough. Uh, uh, it really does a marvelous job of showing, uh, just what happened to the Muslim world and yeah. how they, they took the most sort of fruitful, uh, intellectual tradition and basically condemned it and, within their own circles. And, um, uh, and exercised it.
1: Yeah. And I think that, that it is worth people that have an interest in that period reading figures like Averroes and Avicenna and reading Maimonides of the Jewish, and reading Aquinas and, and the other figures that were interacting to see the rich way in which theological engagement can, can take place and still not lose one's commitment to your core Christian vision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those guys were all reading each other. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot for uh, getting to the end of another episode. If you've done this before, if this is your first time, uh, let me make a pitch to you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, there's a way to, to support us. Uh, we have a Patreon account and a number of people uh, donate to the Theology Podcast each month. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about what You know that is and how it works. There's a link in our show notes. Uh, We really need people to to give to the show to keep the bills paid. (laughs) Um, We don't take any money, by the way. It's not like Tom and Glenn and I are getting rich off of the theology podcast (laughs) or something. We we just need to pay some people to like you know take care of our websites and post the shows and edit them and and so forth. And uh, we really could use some more help in that area. So. Please consider becoming a supporter of the Theology Podcast if you enjoy what you've heard. Um, I guess the last thing to say is that we're getting ready for a big trip to the United Kingdom. We're going to be going to Oxford, and uh, we have secured uh, an interview with Michael Ward. That's going to be great, and we're looking forward to that. We're going to be doing some other things while we're there. Uh, but if you're in the UK and you'd like to you know, connect with us, uh, we'll be there Uh, May 22nd through the 29th we'll be arriving on the 22nd and I imagine we'll need a day to recover (laughs) but uh, then we'll be busy uh, recording shows and going to different places and doing things and we're still in the process of of developing our itinerary Uh, but we're gonna be there in Oxford uh, and and doing a number of different things so we'd love to connect with you if you're a person who lives in the UK anyway anything else we want to say before we say goodbye Okay, well, then goodbye. Have (laughs) a good week. Yeah, right, right.